Good morning and welcome to Immunogen's second quarter 2022 Financial and Operating Results Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn the call over to Annabelle Chan, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning and thank you for joining today's call. Earlier today, we issued a press release that includes a summary of our recent operating progress and second quarter 2022 financial results. This press release and a recording of this call can be found under the Investors and Media section of our website at aminogen.com. With me today are Mark Ennedy, our President and CEO, Anna Birkenblitz, our Chief Medical Officer, Kristen Harrington-Smith, our Chief Commercial Officer, and Susan Altschuler, our CFO. During today's call, we will review recent accomplishments for the business, our Q2 financial results, and highlight upcoming anticipated events. We will be making forward-looking statements based on our current expectations and beliefs. These statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. Please consult the risks outlined in our press release issued this morning in the Risk Factors section of our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and quarterly report on Form 10-Q, and in our other SEC filings, which are available at sec.gov and immunogen.com. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Mark. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. This past quarter, we made significant progress across the business, and importantly, FDA accepted the BLA for MERV with a priority review designation and set a producer date of November 28th. Our ongoing interactions with FDA have been productive, and in conjunction with our mid-cycle review, we were advised that the agency has no plans for an advisory committee at this time. As we transition into a global, fully integrated oncology company, we are actively preparing for the potential launch of MERV monotherapy for patients with folate receptor alpha-positive ovarian cancer. Kristen will provide an update on our launch readiness progress later in the call. In terms of ongoing development, we're pleased to report that our confirmatory Phase three Mirasol trial is now fully enrolled, and we expect to share top-line results from this study in early 2023. We are also advancing our efforts to move MERV into broader patient populations. To that end, we are expanding our development program and are in the process of initiating the Gloriosa and Trial 420 studies. Moving to our second pivotal program, PVEC, we are pursuing cohorts in BPDCN and AML and anticipate reporting important data in both of these indications later this year. Anna will cover both the MERV and PVEC programs in more detail. Lastly, with the progress in our pivotal programs, we are reinvesting in our research capabilities and deepening our earlier stage pipeline as exemplified by our recent research collaboration with Oxford Biotherapeutics to develop novel ADCs. We look forward to deploying our proprietary linker payload technology against the targets identified by OBT to address cancers of high unmet need. So with an exciting first half of the year and a number of important milestones ahead, we believe we are well positioned to create meaningful value for our patients and our shareholders in both the short and long term. With that, I'll turn the call over to Anna to provide additional color on our clinical programs. Anna? Thanks, Mark. At ASCO, we were excited to present additional efficacy data from the pivotal Sorea study and an integrated safety summary of single-agent MERS across multiple studies. The Sorea update included tumor reduction in over 70% of patients and a disease control rate of over 50% in a heavily pretreated population. Preliminary median overall survival was 13.8 months, 
and the Kaplan-Meier curve for PFS shows a long tail, consistent with a significant portion of patients having prolonged benefit from MERV. The retrospective pooled analysis of Serea, Forward 1, and our Phase 1 study demonstrated a remarkably consistent tolerability profile with differentiated safety consisting primarily of low-grade, reversible gastrointestinal and ocular events. Treatment options remain limited for patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, particularly for those who have received prior bevacizumab, and are associated with low response rates, short durations of response, and considerable toxicities. Against this background of high unmet needs, we believe the benefit demonstrated in Serea further supports MERV's potential to become a new standard of care in this population. As Mark mentioned, we have fully enrolled our confirmatory Mirasol study and anticipate top-line data early next year. We also advanced patient enrollment in Piccolo, our single-arm study of MERV monotherapy in recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer patients with high expression of folate receptor alpha, intended to support label expansion. As we look to position MERV as the combination agent of choice in ovarian cancer and expand its reach, we are in the process of initiating our Phase three Gloriosa study, which will evaluate the benefit of MERV plus bevacizumab maintenance versus bevacizumab maintenance alone in the second-line platinum-sensitive setting, and Trial 420, which is intended to inform a potential path to registration in recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. Trial 420 is a single-arm Phase two study of MERV plus carboplatin followed by MERV continuation in approximately 110 platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer patients with low, medium, or high expression of folate receptor alpha. Looking ahead, we're excited to present additional data from our MERV program at ESMO and IGCS, both in September. We also anticipate preliminary efficacy data from our pivotal cadenza study of pivetimab in frontline BPDCN by the end of this year. In addition, Patient enrollment is advancing in our expansion cohort of the Phase 1B2 study, evaluating KIVAS, azacitidine, and venetoclax in relapsed and frontline AML patients. And we expect to share initial data from this study at ASH in December. Regarding our earlier stage pipeline, we anticipate sharing initial data before year end from the Phase 1 dose escalation trial of IMGC 936, our first in class ADAM9 targeting ADC in co-development with macrogenics. We also made meaningful progress addressing the CMC information request from FDA regarding our phase one study of IMG and 151 in multiple solid tumor types and expect to enroll our first patients this fall. With that, I'll turn the call over to Kristen to touch on our commercial preparation. Kristen? Thanks, Anna. We were pleased with FDA's acceptance of our BLA with priority review and in anticipation of a potential approval later this year, we are advancing the build-out of our medical and commercial infrastructure. To that end, we are focused on four key imperatives to ensure a successful launch. These are, with the compelling data from Terea, redefining expectations for positive outcomes with MERV and platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, supporting adoption of early folate receptor alpha testing and establishing standards for in-house and centralized testing upon approval, seeking broad payer access and reimbursement to deliver a seamless patient experience, and finally, 
ensuring positive physician and patient experiences through tailored education and guidance for patient management. Importantly, as our educational efforts progress around awareness of folate receptor alpha and the adoption of early FR-alpha testing, we see physician enthusiasm and support continue to grow in anticipation of potential approval later this year. Our partner, Roche Tissue Diagnostics, is planning for the potential approval and commercialization of the companion diagnostic that will be used to test patients for folate receptor alpha expression at the time of MERV's launch. As a reminder, this diagnostic is an IHC test run on Roche-Ventana's benchmark ultra system, which has a large installed base that includes the majority of our target institution labs. At launch, we expect two to four central labs will be ready to accept patient samples for day one testing readiness. Post-launch, institutions will have the ability to bring testing in-house if they so choose. To minimize access barriers, we plan to offer a sponsored testing program that will cover 100% of the cost of the test for patients. As we prepare for MERV to come to market, access remains a key priority. To provide a range of services aimed at delivering a positive and seamless patient experience, our market access team is engaging with payers and working to finalize the build of our patient hub. We look forward to keeping you up to date on our commercial preparations as we get closer to launch. With that, I will turn the call over to Susan to cover our financials. Susan? Thank you, Kristen. For the second quarter of 2022, we generated $14.2 million in revenue, $7.1 million of which came from non-cash royalty revenues, and the remainder coming from substantially from license and milestone fees, which include recognition of $6.9 million of fees previously received under the company's collaboration agreement with Huadong Medicine. Operating expenses were $75.2 million, comprised of $51.4 million of research and development expenses and $23.8 million of selling general and administrative expenses. We ended the second quarter with $373.9 million in cash on the balance sheet. Our financial guidance for 2022 remains unchanged, and we continue to expect revenues to be between $75 and $85 million, operating expenses between $285 and $295 million, and cash and cash equivalents at year-end between $245 and $255 million. Given the range and timing of the potential approval of MERV, revenue guidance does not reflect product sales. Operating expenses are expected to increase in the second half of the year as we continue to ramp up launch readiness activities, generate additional supply of MERV, and further advance the pipeline. We expect that our current cash, combined with anticipated product and collaboration revenues, will fund operations into 2024. With that, we'll open the call for questions. As a reminder, to ask a question, please press star 1 1. Our first question comes from John Newman with Canaccord Genuity. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Good morning. Uh, thanks for the update and thanks for taking my question. Um, just had one question uh, to start on the Gloriosa study. Um, just wondering if you'll be able to utilize the same centers that um, have recently completed the enrollment in Mirasol 
um, or if there will be some additional centers uh, that you're using for gloriosa that are a bit different than uh, the Marisol study. Thanks. Thanks, John. So gloriosa is our randomized phase three study uh, that we're in the process of initiating right now and look forward to enrolling patients uh, later this year. Uh, looking at mervituximab plus bevacizumab maintenance in the recurrent platinum sensitive setting versus bevacizumab alone. And we already have wonderful relationships with well over 100 sites, uh, actually over 200 sites uh, from the Mirasol study throughout uh, the U.S., uh, Europe, uh, as well as some countries in Asia Pacific. And so we certainly are going to invite them and already have engaged a bunch of sites uh, to get up and running. Uh, and then we'll, of course, branch out into additional areas so that uh, new countries, new sites, new investigators uh, can have the opportunity to participate in mervituximab clinical trials, including Gloriosa. And then um, if I could ask one additional question. Um, you spoke about the, um, <clears throat> the initial plan for the diagnostic testing with folate receptor alpha. Do you have any expectation in terms of how long after launch uh, individual centers uh, might start to explore uh, bringing the test uh, in-house, or is your plan simply to uh, accommodate whatever um, path they choose and just have to see kind of how that shakes out? Sure. So um, thanks for the question. And what we have heard based on you know, speaking to our customer base, the larger institutions that have labs on site, they are very eager to um, start testing in-house. Of course, that the time it takes for them to get trained and to start that process, we'll have central labs uh, starting immediately upon approval so that it doesn't become a barrier in any way and that you know, um, our customer base can utilize central labs while they bring it in-house. But um, we do hear that many of them want to have that capability. Great. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael Schmidt with Guggenheim Partners. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, yeah, Mark, um, great to hear. Sounds like, you know, you had some some confirmation from the FDA that there won't be a, a panel. Um, you know, could you just share, you know, anything else, um, you know, around the, the BLA review process, I guess, how you're tracking uh, with respect to CMC, you know, facility inspections, and, and, and et cetera. Thanks, Michael. So tracking as expected, given we're, you know, inside four months from the Paducah date at this point. So, um, you know, constructive dialogue in the mid-cycle review, and importantly, uh, you know, advice from the agency that they've got no plans for an advisory committee uh, at this time, inspections proceeding as uh, one would expect uh, at this point in time. Uh, we feel very good about where we are in the, in the process with the, uh, with the agency. You know, I think a blow-by-blow blow on sort of where we are in terms of individual components of the inspection wouldn't be helpful. Um, but what I'd say is we're tracking, you know, as we would hope, given the, you know, the time frame relative to Paducah. Okay, perfect. And then um, on IMGN 632, where, uh, you know, we'll get uh, data later this year as well, uh, yeah, just maybe could you help us frame the, the commercial opportunity in terms of the, you know, the market uh, potential for this drug? 
Uh, I know the, um, you know, um, sales figures in, in the market um, are, are a bit out of date, but I was just wondering how you think about the, the you know, the market size in terms of dollars uh, in, in BPDCN initially. Yeah, I, so I think it's a little bit early to talk about, you know, kind of price. And so this is a, you know, a rare indication, right? And even the epi data are a little bit thin. So our best estimates are there are somewhere between 500 and 1,000 newly diagnosed patients uh, here in the U.S. and a similar size market in, uh, in Europe at this point. Um, so, you know, rare disease, um, you know, one would expect uh, consistent with that, you know, pricing, you know, in the range of what, you know, of what one sees for rare oncology uh, products. So, you know, I think if there's an effort to model this, I think those those are the kind of benchmarks that uh, that I would look at. So, you know, again, rare indication. I think the thing to focus on with this drug, though, is both the development strategy and the upside opportunity here, right? So, what we've chosen to do is take a speed-to-market approach with BPDCN, uh, focusing on the rare indication and align with FDA on this 20-patient uh, study and frontline uh, patients to try and get this drug approved in the near term, uh, and then look at, you know, expanded indications to reach the full potential of the drug. And the lead there is, of course, AML. Uh, we have moved forward with expansion cohorts with the triplet in combination with nidoclax and azacitidine. Um, we'll have data at uh, ASH um, from the uh, expansion cohorts uh, fully, the, the relapsed uh, patients and, you know, what we can gather from the, uh, the frontline cohort. So we're excited about the opportunity. You know, I think thinking about it, not dissimilar to Mervitoximab, which is smaller indication, and then, uh, you know, with an accelerated approval or a faster market strategy, and then significant upside from label expansion. So that's, that's how we're approaching this molecule. Great. Thank you. Our next question comes from Esther Durout with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Oh, great. Thanks uh, for taking question. First one for me, just if you can speak to the nature of the presentations for Mervituximab at ESMO and um, um, IGCS um, and, and maybe what new data uh, we could get um, at, at the meetings. So uh, ESMO is early September in Paris. Uh, the abstracts will be released September 5th. And we'll have a couple of uh, clinical pharmacology abstracts uh, so physicians understand uh, really, you know, the ClinPharm profile uh, of our drug. Um, and we're also going to have uh, an abstract uh, uh, data presented from our patient-reported outcomes data from Forward One. Uh, the data that we collected in Forward 1 for patient-reported outcomes show uh, an improved quality of life with regard to disease-related symptoms for mervituximab over chemotherapy, the magnitude of which looks like BEV chemo over chemo. And so those data uh, are really important to understand the potential benefit to patients in terms of their quality of life, and we uh, use those data to uh, inform the collection of quality of life data in the Murafol study that has completed enrollment and is, you know, on track for data early next year. 
um, at IGCS, which is at the end of September and early October uh, in New York City. Uh, we're going to have long-term data from our combinations of MERV plus BEV and MERV plus carboplatin, and we'll share uh, additional information from this array of study. Great. Thank you. And, and you know, the enrollment update, I think, is, is an important milestone. And I guess um, for, for Marisol, that is, and I guess, um, you know, I assume because we are only a few months away from the Marisol um, data readout, at least the top line, that I'd assume that there's there's no plans for another interim look um, at, at Marisol. Is that correct? That's correct. Great. Thank you. Our next question comes from Boris Peaker with Cohen. Your line is open. Great. Uh, my first question is on the Piccolo study. Uh, I'm curious, what do you need to see in the single-arm trial? And kind of maybe more generally, are you considering further development of mermituximab monotherapy in platinum-sensitive patients? Or kind of what is the strategic uh, focus of this trial? So the Piccolo study, MERV monotherapy in uh, FR-alpha-high patients, later-line platinum-sensitive disease. And this is a growing population for us where, you know, as more and more patients are getting a PARP inhibitor as maintenance, either in the frontline setting or the recurrent platinum-sensitive setting, uh, they are extending their platinum-free interval. And uh, when they do relapse, they technically have platinum-sensitive disease with a PFI or platinum-free interval greater than six months. Uh, and yet, it's not like in the pre-PARP days when that meant that patients had nothing in between. Their tumor has been under continuous selective pressure from a PARP inhibitor, which can breed potential cross-resistance. And so these patients with later-line platinum-sensitive disease may not be as sensitive to yet another round of platinum. Uh, and the more platinum you get, the more you're at risk for hypersensitivity reactions that can be uh, quite significant. So in that context, we've already generated data from our phase one study showing very nice, I would call it anecdotal activity for MERV uh, in later line platinum sensitive disease. And so we are enrolling a single arm piccolo study to gather additional data uh, that would then allow us to uh, engage with FDA on what the benchmark would be in this newly emerging population. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, over the next year or so, we will see data uh, being published. I mean, it's already beginning to come out showing that patients uh, who've had a PARP inhibitor are no longer quite as sensitive uh, to, to platinum-based therapy. And I think the emerging data will help us align with FDA on a benchmark that will support uh, potential approval from the Piccolo study. Got it. And just my last question on the Cadenza study. Can you set some efficacy expectations for what you look forward to? So the Cadenza study, we aligned with FDA on a pivotal cohort of up to 20 patients, with the primary endpoint being CRCRC. Uh, this is the same endpoint that Elzonris used uh, and allowed them to get uh, approval in uh, the frontline setting. Um, and so from a statistical perspective, uh, we aligned with FDA that we are ruling out a, a CRCRC rate of 10%, um, knowing that uh, really in this small population, we anticipate seeing response rates as good as or perhaps better than Elzonris and with a better tolerability profile in terms of uh, no potential uh, fatal capillary leak syndrome. You don't need to be hospitalized uh, for the first cycle. Uh, less hepatotoxicity, less heme toxicity, and so 
you know, FDA was quite encouraged with the data that we shared with them that led to breakthrough therapy designation, and then they guided us toward the design of this frontline pivotal cohort that is currently uh, underway. Great. Thank you very much for taking my question. Our next question comes from Andy Shea with William Blair. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. How are you, Andy? Oh, oh, great, great, great. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking my question and uh, congratulations on all the uh, uh, all the progress in the past couple of months. Um, I do have a question for, for Mark. I think you mentioned that uh, you've successfully uh, gone through the mid-cycle review. Um, I am curious about uh, the FDA's um, reception of the broad label that you uh, you proposed. Yeah, so no label negotiations uh, at this point. So I think the goal here is to get through the relative inspections here on, on each of the core components of the application uh, and then move forward with a discussion on uh, on the specifics of the label. Got it, got it. Um, and one for, for Kristen, I'm, I'm curious about the two to four central labs uh, that would be online uh, right after approval. Um, I, I'm curious at this stage, um, how could you communicate that with physicians that could potentially use MERV um, in locations where there's no in-house, uh, uh, you know, equipment uh, available? Is there any sort sure. of detailed um, identity of these labs? where they could just seamlessly kind of transition into that upon approval? Yeah, so we actually um, surveyed a broad customer base of the most commonly used labs, and that's what helped guide us to identify. And we say two to four. Um, we think two would be sufficient given how often they're used, but our plan is to get a broader base so that, you know, if someone has a preferred lab, they can use them day one of approval. And that's the goal. Got it. Got it. Um, great. And lastly, um, a question for Anna regarding kind of the uh, primary platinum-free interval and subsequent platinum-free interval. Um, I, I believe that the forward one platinum, about 40% of the patients in that study, uh, the platinum-free interval, between zero and three is about 40%. Um, I think Soraya's uh, primary refractory patients were excluded, but about 30% or 40% also zero to three. Just curious about um, first for Marisol, are primary refractory patients excluded? And also, um, you know, how would you expect that uh, you know, the secondary or subsequent platinum-free interval between zero to three months, uh, you know, will fall. Sure, Andy. So, Soraya and Mirasol both had the same exclusion criterion for patients with really, really bad disease. These are patients with primary platinum refractory disease uh, who uh, progress within three months of their last dose of uh, their primary, their first platinum regimen. 
Um, that's a little more stringent than what we did in Forward 1. In Forward 1, we excluded patients with a primary platinum free interval of like a month. Um, and so I would say overall that, that has a slight effect of improving the population at PCBIT for Soraya and Miracell. Um, but, you know, the, the percent of patients with primary platinum refractory disease is quite small. Um, and so, you know, what I can say is um, Soraya and Miracell are, uh, you know, the eligibility criteria are essentially identical except for Soraya. You must have had prior betacizumab. And so we anticipate that the, the demographics in Miracell will be quite similar to what we see in Soraya. Our next question comes from Kelly Shee with Jeffries. Your line is open. Uh, congrats on all the progress and thank you for taking my questions. The first question is for Anna. So recently, VBL's phase three trial showed a 5.3 months of medium TFS for palitexel arm in GROC settings. I'm just curious your thoughts on this. Is this a, viewed as an all-performed control arm and uh, should we expect the worst outcome for palitaxel in FR or for high patients? Thanks, Kelly. So uh, the study that you're referring to uh, added Ofrovec to paclitaxel and compared it to paclitaxel alone in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And both arms had a medium progression-free survival, as you mentioned, of about 5.3 months. Um, you know, this is really disappointing for patients that this uh, is not going to advance the field. Um, but to your question around uh, the, the 5.3 months there, uh, you know, we really look forward to seeing the demographics uh, of the patients enrolled because the eligibility criteria in their study um, is, is a bit different. Uh, they uh, allowed patients with what was probably a pretty platinum-sensitive disease in the sense that they allowed patients with up to five prior lines of therapy. However, they excluded patients with three prior lines of therapy for platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. They also allowed uh, patients with or without prior uh, anti-angiogenic therapy. And so, you know, until we see the demographics, um, it's hard for me to put their, their PFS data into context except to say that we know that uh, uh, prior therapies matter, um, you know, also don't know how many of them had prior taxane, one or two lines. Uh, and so, you know, certainly there are other studies where uh, the PFS has, has been in that range uh, for paclitaxel. But what I would point you to is we've already demonstrated an improvement in progression-free survival and even overall survival, you know, uh, from a um, subset analysis perspective from forward one, even in our 10X FR alpha high subset uh, that, uh, as we know, is not as selective as the PS2 plus subset. And so we've already demonstrated a benefit for mervituximab over paclitaxel in FR alpha high patients, and I anticipate that we will do the same in Mirasol. Um, and to your point, it may be that patients with high FR alpha expression uh, do have a worse prognosis. Of, and you may recall that in our exploratory PS2 plus analysis, uh, the control arm uh, had a median PFS of 3.2 months, and then mervituximab arm was 5.6 months. Great. Thanks for the color. I also have a follow-up. In terms of the uh, uh, launch prep, you previously mentioned uh, targeting uh, 4,600 physicians initially. Uh, do you focus on uh, academic centers and uh, uh, community settings equally, or you have a preference initially? Thanks. 
Sure. So we will absolutely focus on both academic and the community setting equally. When we look at our customer base and where the business will come from, you know, there's a very concentrated call point, particularly among the higher utilization, the, the, the folks who utilize chemotherapy or single-agent chemotherapy the most. So when we look at – there's 400 physicians that account for 33% of the market, and they are equally split between academic and community. So the um, the customer model, if you will, that we've designed has folks who are dedicated to the academic setting and folks who are dedicated to the community setting so that we can address both with a very tailored approach. And while we do see the academic setting being the first to adopt MERV because they already have hands-on experience from our clinical trial, what we also know in speaking to folks in the community, they are equally as eager to have an option for these patients that have really, you know, as they say, their backs are against the wall and they have nothing to give them, so they are equally eager to have Mervituximab available. Great, thank you. Our next question comes from Swayampakula Ramakant with H.C. Wainwright. Your line is open. Thank you. This is um, R.K. from H.C. Wainwright. Um, um, most of my questions have been answered, but I have just a couple of quick ones. Um, so, Christian, um, thinking about, um, you know, the the launch uh, of MERV, um, you know, what sort of a you know, commercial structure are you planning to have, um, especially when, you know, you're trying to tailor um, your forces um, for both academic and to the to – the, um, you know, community physicians? Sure. So our commercial model will comprise of 45 field associates. We have 15 what we call strategic account managers, and they are provider account managers. They will cover those top-tier institutions, the academic settings that are a little harder to navigate, but yet at the same time um, do have Mervituximab experience. Then we have 30 field associates, oncology field specialists, who will focus on the community practices um, and be responsible for driving demand there. They're a little easier to navigate, but at the same time, equally as important when it comes to where chemotherapy is, is used. And that is really what Mervituximab will be replacing upon launch. Thank you for that. And then, um, Anna, regarding um, PVAC, um, when, um, so with, with your data, uh, from Cadenza coming out, um, you know, in the fourth quarter, um, you know, what uh, what are the plans in terms of filing um, and timeline for filing filing that application uh, with the FDA? Yeah, so uh, we haven't uh, disclosed at a granular level what our timeline is for the BLA there, uh, RK. Um, certainly, CR, CRC is the primary endpoint, and duration of uh, complete response is also an important endpoint. So, taking that into consideration, you know, once we're once we've locked into a BLA timeline and can provide uh, uh, guidance, we certainly will share that. Thank you. Thanks for taking the questions. Our 
Our next question comes from Jonathan Chang with SVB Securities. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Uh, first question, j- just for clarity, um, for Mirasol, are you still expecting to reach requisite number of events for primary analysis in the fourth quarter? Yes. Got it. Thank you. Um, and second question, just as you think about the Mervituximab commercialization strategy, uh, how are you thinking about ocular toxicities as potential barriers to commercial uptake? Sure. So I can start in Anna Timon if, if, if you want. But um, our goal with the commercial launch is to establish Mervituximab as the standard of care for platinum-resistant ovarian cancer patients with ever-alpha high expression. At the same time, we are anticipating that we might need to remove any barrier that could get in our way. You know, you think about market access. We have a a, a market access team that is removing any barriers around cost, out-of-pocket per patient, reimbursement challenges. We also have our team that is focused on making sure that we manage expectations around ocular adverse events. And um, we will do this not only by having our local team work with their uh, prescriber base to understand which ophthalmologist their patients go to and educating both the ophthalmologist plus the physicians and infusion nurses so that they can manage expectations and manage them that the the ocular AEs that we see with Mervituximab are generally low grade and they resolve and also when they can expect them if they do get them. So we will have a, a full educational effort around this, and um, what we do hear from folks in our trial is that once they experience them, they know what to expect, and they can they can best educate their patients. Yeah, and I would just add that you know in the clinical trials, as we expanded our reach to more and more sites uh, who were new to mervituximab, uh, you know I think the clinical trial data speak to the fact that uh, mervituximab is really well tolerated, and we've had less than one percent of patients for ocular uh, adverse events. And so we're sharing those lessons learned from an education perspective with our commercial colleagues so that we can really uh, successfully do this together. Got it. Thanks for taking my questions. There are no further questions. I'd like to turn the call back over to the team for closing remarks. Great. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. You had a very productive first half of the year and with some key regulatory clinical milestones as well as our first uh, product approval ahead of us in the back half of this year. Uh, we're excited about the prospects of the business and look forward to keeping you updated on our uh, progress. Thanks again, and uh, have a nice weekend. This concludes the program. You may now disconnect.